Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode, we'll be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners, and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Professor Curtis Bonk in this episode. Kurt is an enthusiastic supporter of open education and is an internationally renowned scholar whose work has been frequently awarded. He has nearly 400 publications and has given close to 2,000 talks around the world, from his role as professor in the School of Education and adjunct in the School of Informatics at Indiana University. It's wonderful to be talking with Professor Curtis Bonk, educational technologist and prolific author and presenter associated with the School of Education and School of Informatics at Indiana University. Kurt is a highly decorated and recognized scholar with a global reach across his publications and presentations in educational research. Kurt, it is great to be talking with you. It's great to be here this morning. Can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? You know, I've been thinking about that for some other reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, early on, I, I was a former accountant or CPA, and I escaped the cube farms by taking correspondence and television courses from the University of Wisconsin uh, to qualify for grad school because I didn't have much psychology in undergraduate. Um, so to get ready for, I had to take so many credits to get in, to even get into Wisconsin. And the person I was taking correspondence courses with let me know that I was admitted into the program. His name is Dr. Bob Clausen. And so I quit my job and moved to Wisconsin and took a semester in the spring semester instead of fall, like everybody else, and took four classes. And at the end of the four classes, I got a letter from the department chair saying, you've been accepted in. But I already knew it. I was already there. I didn't even realize I was taking classes. So, you know, and then a year into it, Bob Clausen and his wife, Donna Ray, hired me to create a telecourse called Teachers Tackle Thinking, Critical Thinking in the Classroom, or help them create. I shouldn't say I created. I helped them create and that was nationally syndicated. And that got me sort of on the road to doing work and what's happening today, open online and distance education and so forth. And along the way, my master's thesis was looking at old computer-assisted instruction programs, CAI packages for deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, you know, logical thinking. I was looking at one group doing convergent thinking, one group doing divergent thinking activities in the summer, in summer camps. When I got time to do my dissertation, my colleague and I developed a keystroke mapping system in WordPerfect and a, a set of computer prompts for creativity and critical thinking, basically built on my master's thesis. And so we were looking at little prompts go across the screen. We were watching everyone's papers unfold over time, in effect. It's just free tools. It was just like today, all my research is really using free technology tools, you know, ramped up. This is that was back in 88, 89 or even 87, 88, 89. And so uh, even today, or, you know, I've been looking at Merlot as a website for sharing resources and so forth. Uh, why do people share, you know, what motivates them and so forth? What are the benefits thereof? But if we look at my career, w- what happened is when I got to West Virginia, I started experimenting with collaborative technologies instead of doing solitary studies of uh, individuals at a single workstation, getting f- reflective metacognitive prompts. And instead, I started uh, looking at 
all sorts of collaborative tools that were out there already 30, over 30 years ago, which are better than Google Docs is today, actually. And um, I helped design and build a learning center for youth at risk in Wheeling, West Virginia, where we did some experiments. And then I got excited about the possibility of coming to Indiana, which was building a brand new school, a building to be a demonstration site for technology and education. And so I came to Indiana, been experimenting at Indiana ever since for 30 years is my 31st year. Uh, and we were, we got pork, lobbyist money for the building actually to do some pretty cool stuff, which is not typical for a school of education. Plus we have the top program in instructional systems technology. So we have some of the best students in the world to do research with. Mm. Uh, and so for the past 30 years, I've been expanding on different aspects of research, looking at innovative pedagogy, like case-based learning online. Mm -hmm. uh, we're using a tool called conferencing on the web or how to have teachers in Finland, the U S the UK, Peru, and parts of the U.S. all talk about their early field experiences and chat about them and so forth. Um, so, you know, people start asking me to show them what I was doing pedagogically. And so my research on writing was halted at the time. And I was starting to experiment with just the uh, national surveys on the state of blended learning and, and fully online learning in the U.S., U.K., Korea, uh, Taiwan, China. Uh, and we were looking at blended learning, in fact, and I had worked on the handbook of blended learning with Charles Graham in 2006. And then I wrote the book, The World is Open in 2009, which really expanded on Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat. Thomas Friedman, New York Times writer you might be familiar with. Yeah. And so that really, my career really started taking off. But it was back in 98 when a lot of students at Indiana and I were working on asynchronous conferencing, um, trying to find different ways to do content analyses. And so I had a research-related book come out based on School of Ed uh, research we were doing called uh, Electronic Collaborators, Learner-Centered Technologies for Literacy, Apprenticeship, and Discourse. It helped accelerate my career back in the late 90s. It came out in 98. Yeah. And things have happened ever since then. And so uh, I've been fortunate but really my career is seeing different detours where I was a writing researcher for a while. I was doing this or that for one. And also I was doing wiki books. So I was back to being a writing researcher, having students at Beijing Normal and in Taiwan and in Open U of Malaysia and the U.S. Yeah. all write a collaborative books together. So that was happening for a while. Recently, what I'm working on mostly is self-directed learning, trying to, trying to get some insights into how to foster self-directed learning. And I've course, done tons of studies on MOOCs and open education, massive open online courses. I have two books, uh, MOOCs and open education in, in the global south, MOOCs and open education around the world. I say three books. Recently, I've come up with 15 guidelines for fostering self-directed learning that my colleague Mena Ju and I published about a month ago in Open Learning, the journal in the UK. And we have another one, a sister article to that coming out in ECNU, East China Normal University Review of Ed. Um, and it just this past week, distance education has accepted a meta-analysis of self-directed learning that my colleagues and I did. So I would say right now that is the primary theme or focus, 
with two studies. One study looking at Duolingo yeah. and why people use Duolingo, uh, what motivates them, what incentivizes them, and how hard they can be more self-directed in their learning pursuits. And second, we're looking at Nepali kids learning English online at the start of the pandemic, before the pandemic, in fact, getting certificates from Harvard for learning English, and then during the pandemic, taking dozens and dozens, and in some cases, more than 100 MOOCs as teenagers, right. at first to prepare themselves for college entrance, and some got admitted to, co- to university. And so we're looking at, you know, what what happened, what, what, the, what supports they had from their teachers, what incentivized them. Yeah. And so we interviewed teachers, we interviewed students, and we haven't published that yet. But I guess the themes related to my research early on were in writing and computers and writing and writing as thinking and all that. It's kind of evolved over time as the web became a platform for experimentation into this wonderful world of openness. Yeah. Uh, and I've done various various types of research in this world of open education. Mm, mm. That sheer breadth of research uh, makes this next question just so interesting for me. So the ideas and themes your work has provided that you sense are still pertinent today. Yeah, I, I, th- I think the guidelines we came up with uh, really evolved over a set of studies that took place over the past decade. And so I was looking at cultural sensitivity in MOOCs, personalization in MOOCs, and I was interviewing some of the top people around the world who were delivering them from the Philippines or Indonesia or Korea or wherever. And uh, after I had done enough of those interviews, I started coming up with some guides or templates to help instructors create instruction that was more culturally relevant and inclusive, mm-hmm. which a lot of people are talking about today, diversity, equity, inclusion, of course. Uh, but that's been my area all along. Remember, I created that telecourse called Teachers Tackle Thinking, Critical Thinking in the Classroom. Mm. That's a nationally syndicated telecourse. That was opening the world up to educational possibilities, getting teachers professional development around the entire country or perhaps North America on that one. I would say the thing that still is relevant today is providing a uh, better understanding of access including the Nepali study I mentioned and helping people design their instruction, both to be more open and flexible and so forth, Mm. but to be more innovative at the same time to be engaging. So I'm actually looking at engaging interactive and collaborative learning at the same time. I'm thinking about accessible, sensitive, culturally relevant pedagogies. And so those are a couple, I guess, themes to what, what I've been doing. And a lot of people say, you're the blended learning guy. Well, I have a handbook of blended learning. I did a lot of research on blended. Yeah, It's part maybe of almost, we're all doing blended. You know, there is no blended learning. Some people say, well, you're the e-learning guy. There is no e-learning guy. Nobody in the world knows everything about the research on e-learning. And people are want to know four things. They want to know about assessment, yeah. quality, uh, copyright and plagiarism. Those are the four things they want to know about right away. Yeah. I'm not interested in any of those four. <laughs> I, I don't care. I'm a former accountant. I don't want to do assessment anymore. You know, quality, you know, if you're going to be overwhelmed with comparing this or that, if I was worried about quality, I wouldn't be here right now because mm. I know full well taking those correspondence and online courses weren't as good as face-to-face, but that was my only choice. That was the only way I could yeah. get in and leave the cube farms of the accounting world into graduate school 
And many millions of people today are taking MOOCs, probably are not as good a quality as face-to-face, but their lives are changing because of it. Yeah, we got to yeah. stop just going on and on about quality, copyright, plagiarism, assessment. No, let people learn first. Give them the give them the keys and the and the driver's license to go in to all the, this wonderful massive openness that we have in front of all of us today, and then you know as they accumulate the micro credentials and other things, maybe you can assess those and, and gradually let those build up over into a degree and so forth. Don't don't stop them at the front door. Let them in the front door. And then have those assessments if you want, you know, concerned about plagiarism, of course, is important concern and copyright. But you got to let them in first before you, you can ever, you know, um, get a handle on what else is happening in those systems. So I, I don't know if I've answered the question, but, you know, you can see there's many things that still interest me. And I think going back as I started, it's still re- everything and it's still to some degree relevant today which I'll say before you go on to the next question, which is also disappointing in that people look at the time date stamp of your publications and think that anything over two years old is not relevant anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, and so this field is exciting because there's so many things that one can be researching and, and so many people I can, I can connect to. And I give talks around the world. I meet, you know, nursing faculty and public health and, you know, people in business schools and law schools and, you know, it's just amazing who I can connect to and talk to and share information with. But at the same time, some of the stuff I've you know public published five years ago or six years ago, people think is dated and they want to hear what's happening today or tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Just riffing off two things there. So you mentioned um, anything older than two years is almost like yesterday's scholarship. But you also mentioned keeping the doors open. And uh, I suspect you riffed off Wedemeyer there for just a moment, um, Charles Wedemeyer and his work on... Um, uh, education at the back door. So it is about access, isn't it? Making sure that everyone has the opportunity to study, to learn, to grow, to excel. Uh, about two o'clock this morning, I was writing a book forward and cited Charles Wedemar. He's the kind of the reason I got to grad school. I unfortunately didn't know him or of him. Bob Clausen, who taught the courses that I took, had the office kitty corner from Wedemar. And um, I got fortunate to get a Wedemeyer Award at the Wisconsin Distance Teaching and Learning Conference about uh, eight or so years ago, whenever it was, seven years ago. And um, Bob Clausen gave the speech at the start and talked about Wedemeyer and the history that he provided and, and segued into my work. So I'm connected to him in some ways. Yeah. Uh, when I found out I got the award, I was in Thailand, in Bangkok, in a hotel, and I literally cried. And I had to give a talk to the cyber Thai people that day. And I gave, I included Wedemeyer in that talk. I think it was probably one of the most uh, passionate talks I've given. And I've given over 19, about 1900 talks. So uh, Wedemeyer is special. I mean, because he opened up the world. He got people to think about moving away from ear pan to ear pan learning, eyeball to eyeball learning to anything else, non-traditional, informal alternative forms of instruction have become the norms. Mm. He was called the, the crazy man in the 1950s and 60s talking about video conferencing and how it could Im- impact learning and satellite instruction and so forth, how it could transform learning. So yes, I did include a reference to him in, in what I had said in my earlier uh, question, but also right in my writings, I think what am our, I, in fact, my monster syllabus, I start off with quotes from Wedemeyer. Yeah, yeah. I have students read him 
uh, his book from 1981, Learning at the Back Door, yeah. Reflections on Non-Traditional Learning in, in the Lifespan, is a class. And you can buy, anyone listening to this can buy Wedemeyer's book for $1 on Amazon. It's the best book you can buy for $1 on Amazon used. Everything is quotable. Every single thing he says in that book, you could quote still today, and it is relevant. It's really unfortunate that the graduate students and undergraduate students in the field of educational technology or learning design and technology or any tangential related field are so fixated on the, the, the most current things that are happening, the technology stuff. Yeah. It's not the technology stuff that's transformative that stays over time. It's the theory and the thinking behind the use of it, it's thoughtful integration of those technologies that's important. And Wedemar led us on that road. Yeah, those, those enduring ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So it's now towards the end of 2022. Um, the world is still recovering, I think, from COVID, but there's been a lot of reopening taking place. <laughs> what are your observations about online learning at the present time? Everybody's embracing AI and all the stripes uh, in, in the way in which it might provide a, a additional personalization, additional information and partnership, uh, an external voicedness for one's thinking so instead of the computer prompts I developed 30 years ago for WordPerfect or a little over 30 years ago, mm. today we can have an AI bot that might provide that guided instruction, potentially that neo Vygotskyan types of learning where we have someone pushing or prodding us and rousing new minds to life, if you will. Mm. If AI can do that, if AI can be an integrative partner to augment our cognition, that to me, is a, is a wonderful scenario. However, if, if AI is there to provide what a system algorithm calculates that you need to have next and takes out the decision-making or choice of the learner, to me, that's taking a giant leap backwards in time uh, to back to the B.F. Skinner days. And I worked with B.F. Skinner's daughter and son-in-law, by the way, at West Virginia University. So I know a little bit about Skinner. Skinner was a professor at Indiana University, in fact, before he went to Harvard. So, um, you know, I, I think he did a lot to teach us about how to provide positive reinforcement and encouragement uh, along the way and uh, guide one's learning. But if guidance becomes authoritarian in nature mm, and yeah. again the we lose the human being in the in the cycle like bill gates is so enamored with uh technology providing the personalization from the Khan academy they provide him with millions of dollars to create assessments that wrap around it and to understand the learners help learners along the way but if we lose our identity if we lose our our individual self-worth um to me, we become automatons, mm. and, and that that's worrisome. So in terms of the future of online learning and instruction, I hope that we have both technology and human beings in the loop in a symbiotic fashion so that we can um, feel we're part of a growing community of learners yeah. or community of practice in the workforce so we get some shared identity, history, membership, where we give something to that community as well as receive from it. Mm. And we celebrate those human successes along the way. We encourage each other uh, along the way. And our so social networks or ties expand 
through those and technology like a robot or a chatbot can become a partner within that providing information as needed as queried by the human being not forcing them to ponder something because uh, some again algorithm has told them that the learner needs to proceed uh, to the next um, item in the giant menu of prepackaged and pre-organized uh, learning contents. So I am one who's anti-prepackaging of material mm-hmm. and pro on the learner choice of things. And that's a significant area that will have to be thought about, reflected on, discussed, have a conversation about during the coming decade. Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a real danger there of a technocentric uh, versus perhaps um, anthrocentric or even learning centric approach to online education. Yeah, being more learning centered, and I've come up with twenty what I call last principles instruction. <laughs> David Merrill has the first principles instruction I, as part of my education twenty twenty model. Twenty new roles of the instructor: the instructor is concierge, coach, curator, cultivator, and so forth consultant, all these C words. Mm -hmm. And then the principles, uh, uh, I call the last principles, principles make a learning ecology or learning environment. So having a flexible, convenient, relevant, meaningful, authentic type of learning environment. So I have 20 principles there and 20 roles of the instructor I call Education 2020. I've not written that up. That's one of the frameworks I'm working with. You might have my Tech Variety book with the Tech Tech Variety standing for 10 Motivational Principles. Other people have heard of my R2-D2 model, Read, Reflect, Display, and Do, or, you know, my problem-solving wheel. Some people call it a learning style model. So I come up with different models or frameworks for thinking about the use of technology and instruction or integrating it in in a thoughtful way. Mm. Education 2020 becomes kind of a macro lens or view as to where we're perhaps headed as a culture or society in terms of education and technology. Um, Other people around the world, you hear them talk about education 3.0. In Thailand, they're talking about education 4.0. Well, really what most people are talking about is project-based learning, inquiry-based learning, giving students, again, the keys and letting them drive for a bit and self-direct aspects of their learning. Yeah. Really, that's all that they're talking about, whether it's education 3.0, they go to education 10.0. They'll get it more into students generating knowledge, being innovative in the curriculum instead of being delivered a prepackaged and preset type of curriculum. Mm, Excellent. So, Kurt, imagine you've uh, just opened up the latest issue of a journal and the perfect article is there, the one you've been waiting to see your whole life. What is it about? What's the research you'd most like to see? It would be talking about about simultaneous translation of contents so that everyone can understand or try to understand and communicate at all at the same time and share what's going on in their respective parts of the world and in turn learn from one another. So one part will be translation of of what's there. Um, Second part, I guess, would be a system, an educational system that was in not entirely, but primarily learner-driven and focused in nature mm. and that would have more, I guess, formative types of assessments than summative types of assessments that would take into account one's informal learning activities as part of the or part, their portfolio of what 
and who they are as a human being. Hmm. So if I was reading something, it would be the embracement of uh, one's learning journeys in all its ways uh, and stripes that include the non-traditional and informal and open as well as the formalistic types that occur. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that uh, any article that might relate to that would be of interest to me. Excellent. So can we go back to that first one you mentioned? Um, if I'm interpreting it correctly, that the same concept, but different layers of engagement with that concept for those who have never heard it before versus those who perhaps might, might be more familiar with it. Did I, did I read you right there? That's well said. Um, everyone's felt different concepts in different ways. Mm. And mm. some people have to have to be provided with introductory scaffolds yeah. and aids in those environments where they haven't, you know, necessarily spent much time. Others have dabbled informally and formally uh, throughout their lives in a content area. Maybe it's ancient Rome or, you know, ancient Greece or personal finance or whatever marketing or whatever the topic is. If you've had, you know, less exposure to that area, naturally providing those options um, along the way so that learning can take place no matter your starting point. And I think that's what's happening in some of the MOOCs, like the ones for physics that they're that done some studies of. While the people who didn't have much exposure to physics prior to uh, this in their lives only scored at the 50th percentile would be a failing grade. They came in at the 10th percentile or 20th percentile. So it really showed a huge amount of learning that was taking place. Yeah. But within the, the institutional structures that we have, we set a bar at a certain level. We don't look at learning growth or learning uh, capacity even. The learning that has taken place could be huge. And could change one's life, as I said. Some people go in for just snippets of learning, as we all know, and don't ever finish these gigantic, massively open online courses. And we get worried about that, that they've dropped out. Instead of using terms like drop in, mm. I want to I focus on the drop in rate to learning, not the drop out rates. Yeah. Instead yeah. of learning loss, I want to talk about learning gains. There's a ton of things that happened in my learning and other people's learning during the pandemic that wouldn't have happened without the pandemic happening. But we're so focused on the previous assessment schemes that we have set up for societal performances uh, and to be the earmarks or the designations of one's learning instead of letting people self-direct their learning pursuits to some degree and their, their career paths. We have education that gets in the way, especially the assessments and the expectations of others that get in the way of true human learning, you know. So, you know, I, another thing I'd like to see is more, I guess, studies, uh, showcases, success stories of people across the lifespan. And so MIT had this open courseware thing, you know, OCW. Yep. Charles Vest, the president of MIT, announced that April 4th, 2001. Well, I studied MIT OpenCourseWare. They actually sponsored one of my studies. Uh, they sent it out in their newsletter to thousands of people, and many of them took my survey. And then uh, we had interviews with folks in their 20s, in their 30s, and in, in their teens, all the way into their 60s and 70s, you know, um, open-ended interview questions 
that were fascinating in looking at uh, what was happening at different stages in people's lives in terms of the use of open education mm. and the impact of that open education. So I think we need more impact and success stories. So if I was if I was to read something that would excite me, it'd be it'd be stories of personal impact of human beings across the lifespan and across regions of the world mm. Uh, mm. so that people see that this is a pervasive um, change that's happening around the world, that, that, that our definitions of success uh, and or failure are much different than those in rural parts of Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, and South Asia and Western China, much more different, you know, looking at access as the number one. Uh, in fact, in China, they renamed a building, the MOOCs Times building, because they equate MOOCs with online learning. And we don't in the U.S. Online learning is something, you know, we don't, we don't call MOOCs are one form of online learning. But when access is the key thing, uh, MOOCs or, or telecourses, correspondence, radio, all those things are providing access, as Wedemeyer point, points out. And so it's all, you know, instead of, you know, trying to compare apples and oranges or this class to that class, we should be looking at the, the, the entire spectrum of um, delivery platforms and, and types of courses uh, and learning events or opportunities uh, that are being provided so that we can inspire this next generation and say, well, I can be learning too. If someone in Sudan or in Nepal can be learning English from Harvard, this gives me hope as an individual. This offers me possibilities for learning too, or my, my children, or my brothers and sisters. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I'm quite inspired by the thought of um, talking with people who have learned at the back door, uh, hearing their stories, hearing the plethora of different ways in which they've engaged with education, thanks to what's possible now through online learning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that, when you look at the young kid in that book cover of Wedemeyer, it's a young Russian kid looking through an elitist school. He wasn't allowed in. As I, I talk in my, and often my keynotes, um, I got a 19 on the ACT, which is not good. My niece got the high score, like 36. I couldn't get into Lower Potomac State University, which doesn't even exist with those test scores. Fortunately, my university undergraduate one didn't require it. Um, but today I can learn from Harvard and Stanford and Oxford and Cambridge. And, and, and it's all right there, you know, and MIT has every single class up on the web. Some of them actually have an instructor behind them now in the form of a MOOCs and so forth. Not most of them don't. They have it's all async. Um, but still, you know, Wedemar's point was that we need to provide um, access to those kids that were being left behind. And he helped create the Open U in the UK, which was the first open universities in the world and led to many others that, you know, Open U of Malaysia went from like nobody in 2001. My friend Abtar Kuar went, uh, she was on sabbatical with me at Indiana. She went back home and she got a job there. And every year they added 10,000 students to within a decade, 100,000 students. So, you know, there are learners out there trying to find ways to learn. Asha Kanwar in the Commonwealth of Learning says we cannot build enough universities. You know, we need like basically one university a day to be built to, to satisfy the demand that's out there. And that can't, can't be done. So open and online and, and distance and 
correspondence and other forms of learning are you know needed in giant ways right now to transform society and solve some of the problems that we have pressing issues and problems like climate change absolutely Okay, let me finish then with two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you, and one who you think otherwise has an important perspective to share. Well, I think you interviewed George Valencianos already, and he'd be one. He was supposed to be my student at Indiana. Um, he stayed at the University of Minnesota and got his doctorate up there. He's, been, he's got a wide range of research in online and distance learning uh, that, he, that he engages in. Uh, I would say my friend Punya Mishra, who's on my podcast show, Silver Lighting for Learning, is one worth talking to because he's an extremely creative individual. He's one of those people can write a word one way and flip it the other way, and it reads the same word. I just saw amnograms or something like that. Uh, and, and he created the TPAC model, which has got uh, thousands of educators thinking about how to thoughtfully integrate uh, technology and learning. Yeah in their instruction. Uh, I would say my colleague, Lin Lin, uh, who's now at um, Southern Methodist University, she was at the University of North Texas. She's the editor of Educational Technology Research and Development. Mm -hmm. And so she would understand a lot of the themes that are going on, but she also is doing a lot of research on, on neural aspects of the psychology where it meets technology. Um, and, but she's done a, one study that we did together looking at gamification of MOOCs. Uh, so she's got a broad or wide range of, of interests uh, mm. in the online open and distance learning world. But again, because she's an editor of a journal uh, and has now become department chair at Southern Methodist, where they're taking a heavy look at immersive worlds and immersive technologies. They, they have a, a basically like a cluster hire or a significant amount of money earmarked towards immersive learning. So she might be an interesting one to talk to. I'll mention a third person real quick. Mm. And that is Vanessa Denon at Florida State. She is my former student and she is uh, an endowed chair, a distinguished professor at Florida State. And she does a lot of research on distance learning and social media uh, and uh, a lot of emerging technologies, I would say. There are other people that I could mention, uh, but any of those folks that, you know, would be people that uh, you should be aware of and potentially interview for your podcast show. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to thank you for giving me time to appear on this show today. Oh, no, but pleasure is absolutely mine. It's been a really inspirational conversation. Uh, you've got such a breadth of scholarship, uh, such an international range of insight. Thank you so much for being a leader and legend of online learning. Thank you all. Uh, talk to me on email, cjbonk at indiana.edu. I look forward to hearing from you. Excellent. Thanks, Kurt. You can learn more about Kurt and his work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.